They call it Stormy Monday But Tuesday's just as bad Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. It is March 26, 2018. I am Charlie Sykes, joined by Jonathan Last and Michael Warren of The Weekly Standard. First of all, can we just talk about the best story of the weekend? What was the best story of the weekend, gentlemen? I mean, this is, this is a, a, uh, a true-false question. Best story of the weekend is... Mike, I know what the right answer is. Well, I know okay. what the right answer is, too, because we just talked about it. So I'm going I'm I'm, I'm to let you do it. JBL. Duke losing. <laughs> it's good and, for and all of us. It, yeah, and the way they lost was so great because they didn't just lose, but they blew it. They totally blew. They had the they had scored, I believe, was on like six consecutive possessions down low in the paint. They were totally dominant. Kansas's center had fouled out, and yet when they came down the court, Duke's punk senior leader Grayson Allen, who every I would say every real sports fan in America has hated for all four years. He's he. It's like the attitude of Christian Leitner married to the talent of Steve Wojcikowski. And uh, he came down, and it was clear the minute that he, he crossed half court, he was not going to give the ball up. And so this guy who was the least talented guy on the floor, the guy who had the least to contribute to the game, had decided he was going to take the shot by God. And he passed up, by my count, three good looks at, at you know, the better players on Duke who could have scored and won the game and sent them to the final four so that he could take the shot on his own and he missed it and it was great. And it's especially great, Charlie, because my son is an irrational Duke fan and I want that crushed out of him. I want to crush it out of him. And he's like this because my father-in-law who grew up in New Jersey, went to college in New Jersey, Mm -hmm. wonderful man. I should say I love him a great deal. This is the only thing about him I hate. He is an irrational Duke fan. He has no connection to North Carolina, no connection to Duke. He just likes them because they're winners. They play the right way, and they're winners. <laughs> okay, so this was this was a teaching parenting moment. So actually, your, your your answer to the question was almost right, almost <laughs> right. Not actually correct because the best story of the weekend has to be the Sister Jean story. Yes. I mean, it, yes. yes. Does anything else make America great more than a ninety eight year old nun? Who goes to her first tournament ever, and she's the mascot, which is the chaplain for Loyola Chicago. And these guys come out of absolutely nowhere. They have no business being in the Final Four. And Sister Jean is there, and she's she's awesome, and she has a bobblehead, and I want it. And she's and- together, too. Yes. That's the other thing. Like she's not just like some doddering old nun in a right. wheelchair. She's really she's funny. She's on point. I she, she's Love great her. on Twitter. She, did you see her tweet? She, she said, uh, do you know what? I gave up for Lent, uh, losing. So. <laughs> Love it. I had that this moment, I, in this juxtaposition of you know watching Sister Jean and, and how the whole country really just sort of needed somebody like Sister Jean. At the moment where you have the president, you know, the president of the United States in some bunker in the White House waiting on the interview with a porn star. And you have to ask, what, what is making America great? And we're going to get to the porn star later. Of course, we have to get to all of that. It is Stormy Monday. Um, breaking news this morning, the Trump administration expels 60 Russian diplomats, 40 from the Russian embassy in D.C., 12 from the U.N. in New York. They shut down the consulate in Seattle. I have to say, that's a pretty good start. That that does not strike me as a slap on the wrist. Good start for a president who's been rather abysmal um, in taking on Russia. Anybody disagree there? 
No, I don't. But it's a, it's this weird aspect of the Trump administration's Russia policy, which is that it's uh, not only much tougher than the Obama administration's uh, really pathetic Russia policy, um, but it's a lot tougher than the president himself, or at least the president's rhetoric. Um, so it, it puts us in this weird position of, of where do we give or how do we give credit to the administration? Because they've been very tough. Um, even as the president himself has uh, sort of been unwilling to uh, criticize Vladimir Putin, uh, making Putin unique among maybe people in the world uh, for this president, uh, not being criticized by by Donald Trump, ha- called just last week to congratulate Vladimir Putin on yeah. his life. Do not congratulate, he was told, by his advisors. And he he's found a way to um, sort of confirm the worst conspiracy theories about him being a puppet for Russia. And it's this incongruity uh, with his administration's own actions, um, you know, even even though the president didn't want to sign that uh, sanctions bill last year that Congress sent to him, he he did end up doing that. Uh, and so, uh, and and uh, after the the Mueller investigation found out about all these Russians who were. Um, uh, doing bad things during the uh, 2016 election with regard to uh, fake news and and that's and, and other sort of uh, interference that the president himself says didn't happen. Uh, the administration took action against those uh, uh, those big sanctions. I think on 12 people. So it's this weird thing where the Trump mm-hmm. administration is uh, you know a bunch of Russia hawks except for the guy yeah, on who, top. Who 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 is he going to criticize? Who's going to rip on Twitter first, uh, Vladimir Putin or Stormy Daniels? See, that's a trick question because you know what the answer is. Okay, guys, we have to. I know we've talked about uh, the the kids and whether the kids are all right before uh, massive rallies around the country on Saturday. I'm going to admit to you, I'm ping ponging back and forth between you know watching this and thinking, okay, th- th- this is. This is a significant movement. This is something that, and I agree with the editorial in the Weekly Standard, conservatives make a big mistake if they don't acknowledge the significance of this movement. On the one hand, but also just getting that gut sense that this is going to generate the backlash, particularly the kinds of over-the-top, grandiose, self-referential uh, you know, rhetoric from the David Hoggs of the world who – have you guys seen, by the way, that that uh, video where he's just dropping one F-bomb after another and you, you kind of wish his parents would come in the room and say, uh, David, uh, this is not actually helpful. So give me your take, uh, your your gut sense take on this march and whether, in fact, we are actually watching a a, a turning point, either culturally or politically. You know, I I was wrestling with this question over the weekend, Charlie, and I couldn't figure out in my mind if we're ever able to understand that cultural turning points are happening while we're in them or not. I mean, I, so I was thinking, remember that we had the Million Man March, the Farrakhan March, which was back in like, I want to say 98 or 97 when I first came to Washington. We had the Million, uh, the, the, the Promise Keepers March a year or two after that, the Million Mom March. I mean, these things happen from time to time. And it's never clear if they really signify anything. Uh, and yet sometimes they do, you know, like I, mm-hmm. so this, I guess what I'm, what I'm asking, and I, I'd be interested in your thoughts on this as much as anything else. Historically, do we understand we're in a moment when we're in a moment? And I, I, I have been wondering that a lot. I mean, really stretching back, starting with, I would say like the Ferguson protests, Black Lives Matter bleeding into uh, bleed, bleeding into the Me Too stuff, bleeding into this, you know, March for Life stuff, or, or March, whatever it was. What do they call it? Not the March for Life, because yeah. that's the bad, uh, right. bad abortion. March people. for all lives. Marshal for all lives, right? You know, 
just not not the unborn lives. Right. Um, yeah, you, you know, it's interesting you ask that because, you know, did you see there was a quote in Axios from, I'm looking for this right now, from, uh, is it Michael Beschloff, Beschloff who is the, uh, the president historian. of the historian, yeah, yeah. who makes exactly the same point that you don't know until years later which, which was the turning point, which was the most significant year. And given the fact that we live in an era of all sorts of noise, it is hard to uh, it is hard to, to filter it out. I, I guess I, as I said, I had I had multiple takes on this. I, I there was very little in terms of good news. I think for Republicans um, over the weekend, you know, particularly because if this is a wave year, it's a wave year because of the mobilization, because of the intensity, of the feeling which you saw on display here. Also, these poll numbers about millennial voters, I, I think, um, ought to be sending up red flares. Uh, there's a line in the in the standard editorial that talks about, you know, that we're, uh, you know, the conservatives are basically losing, you know, the demographic argument. Um, I, I didn't quote that. Uh, you guys have it in front of you what it is. But, but you know, th th we, we see an entire generation slipping away, not just from the GOP, but from conservatives. On the other hand, there is also this this the way we turn everybody into a celebrity. And, and there's something just, there's something cringeworthy and disturbing about the way that we're taking these 15, 16, 70 year old kids, pushing them through the curtain. Um, you know, there's a certain grandiosity to it that, that I, I kind of wonder whether it's going to backfire. It's awfully gross and unseemly, isn't it? I mean, I, I gotta say, and, <laughs> And As attack, I think I've said to you on this on show Marco before, Rubio from David Hogg. I mean, come on. Right. Yeah, and my my no. sympathies on as a policy matter are basically with these kids. Although I, right. I think they're they're idiots in a lot of ways, and we shouldn't be listening to children anyway. Uh, you know, children are there to be educated, not to do the educating. And uh, but I, I would say it's important to real realize that. When we talk about the the polls, as you mentioned on this, I think a lot of conservatives who don't pay much attention to demographics tell themselves, oh, it's always like this. The mm -hmm. young people are always liberal, and then they get more conservative as they get older. Th not like this. I mean, when you look at the Pew numbers on this, uh, this cohort of kids is like 20 points more liberal than all previous generations at this point in time. So, I mean, <laughs> it is important to understand that it is a it's a real shift. This isn't just the, the type of thing we always see with every generation where young people are liberal and then they get conservative as they get older. Uh, these people are way I, more this, liberal. This is a very, very important point because I, I do think that it is different. And also because our politics has become different. It is more cultural. It is more uh, politics of identity and attitude. And I don't see a lot of these kids who are going to be marinating in four to uh, eight years of, uh, you know, of, of you know, Trumpism um, changing their, you know, changing their allegiances or their attitudes. I mean, this this is going to be imprinted in the American culture for a very, very long time. Uh, uh, Michael, Charlie, I Charlie, uh, yeah, I, I really want, want to quickly to yeah. point out that I think that what we're looking at here with young people is sort of a reversal of what you might think would happen, right? That you would think that kids sort of have, young people have liberal views on policy uh, issues and then that pulls them into, you know, toward one party or another, uh, obviously to the Democratic Party. I think what's actually happening is um, chiefly or mainly you're seeing young people sort of repelled by the personality of Donald Trump. Uh, and I think the danger there is that that sort of repels them uh, uh, sort of temperamentally from uh, considering, uh, you know, the Republican Party or conservative ideas. And then once once they mature, um, that 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 manifests yeah. itself in sort of adopting more liberal ideas. You actually can see in some of the polling on guns, for instance, young people are actually not 
that much more liberal on on the the question of of guns in the Second Amendment uh, than the population at large. Um, so I, I think the fear for conservatives is that uh, is that the the brand is so bad. Yeah. Uh, well, Trump is liberal. I mean, this is the other well, thing. Yes, yes. I mean, you tr- they were they're reacting against Trump, who holds if you just strip him away from it and did you know like do you believe that the government should have a welfare state supporting all people? Trump is probably where most of these millennials are policy wise. You know, he wants big government. He wants an expansive welfare state. He wants to not have foreign entanglements and wars. He's basically okay with all sorts of gun restrictions, contra the NRA. I mean, this is what liberal republicanism looks like, and it has become toxic because it's come from Trump. So it's not about, it's it's exactly as you say, this is not about policy, it's about personality. Okay, let's uh, switch. Again, it's it's hard to sometimes figure out what the major developments are. Let's talk about the whether or not there really is a break in the ranks, conservative ranks, um, after the signing of that omnibus bill. Uh, the president, of course, you know, did that uh, that uh, Trumpian thing where he signaled that he might veto the bill because it was so awful. Uh, then he signs it, and we did see at least uh, you know among some of the talking heads and some of the social media folks, most notably Ann Coulter. So I'm slightly obsessed with Ann Coulter's obsession with Donald Trump. Uh, some real blowback, uh, some sense of betrayal. So the question is, is this the first real crack uh, in the in the in the Trump in the Trump base, the the the, the Trump uh, Amen chorus, or is this likely to be temporary, Mike Warren? I think it's temporary um, for a couple of reasons. One, this is, I think, with time, will follow how – this is not really the first time that sort of professional conservatives or Twitter conservatives have gotten angry with the president for something. But what you see uh, happens with situations like this is the the frustration, the anger, the vehemence transfers magically to – every other Republican in power and not the president. Uh, this is, I already saw this on, on it, Friday. It is magical. Yes, it, is, it, it, it sort it of is, transfers it like, to Paul Ryan, Mitch McConnell. Yep. And um, and I think that has a lot to do with um, sort of the motivating factor here, which is um, a lot of these people, Ann Coulter, uh, who's actually, I should say, has been a little more consistent on the issues. She's obsessed with the wall and immigration and, and things that the president has not gone far enough. But others, um, I, I think what the motivator here is, uh, power and essentially Donald Trump is in power, uh, and you can be angry, you can thrash, and you can scream. But uh, if you're being honest with yourself, um, he was never uh, positioned as some kind of fiscal hawk. Uh, never, never. No, and so, no, never. I mean, and, and the heart of Trumpism has never been small government. The heart of Trumpism has never been, you know, fiscal conservatism, deficit reduction, any of those things. So you. Yeah, they're they're upset about this because they're almost reflexively uh, upset about these crappy budget deals. Right. This has always fed the outrage machine, the perpetual outrage machine that gave us Donald Trump. But you know that within a very short period of time, they're going to revert to the norm of anti-anti-Trumpism. You know, they'll find somebody who will criticize Trump and they'll rally around a, a, again. But on this issue of the wall, it is really, if you step back, rather extraordinary how Donald Trump did get rolled on that wall. He got, he got, whether he knows it or not, he got nothing on the wall. Totally. Which is really, when you think about it, quite remarkable. I think so. And and this is something that um, Trump's bluster, I think, either was designed or uh, more likely just sort of had the uh, effect of uh, masking over on Friday. You know, he comes out and he complains 
about having to sign this bill, and he was very frustrated with it. But he's got to do it. He's not never he's never signing a bill like this again. Uh, which is that the the guy who wrote the art of the deal, um, as you said, Charlie, got rolled, and he got rolled. As far as I can tell, people I talked to um, when I, I think at the last moment here, let's just go quickly back to Friday of sort of what happened. There was this. Um, this this omnibus bill had passed Congress. The White House had been kind of working on it with leadership in Congress. Just let's just get this through and, and get uh, get something done. And then Friday morning, the president said, uh, uh, "I'm this is a terrible bill. I'm not going to sign this." He was, he really was feeling a lot of pressure and feeling like he couldn't uh, uh, do it. Um, and and then he ultimately kind of caved in um, after making this veto threat. Really? Uh, I, I think that sort of reflected, uh, as far as I can tell with people I talked to, uh, a misunderstanding of exactly how these bills are put together, exactly what his White House was doing to negotiate with leaders on Capitol Hill for the previous three weeks. Um, and so he got rolled not just as a sort of negotiation, he got rolled on the process in, entirely. And he, and he was issuing a veto threat after Congress had already passed the bill. Really, he was issuing a veto threat on himself, and he caved. It was remarkable. Okay, we have to talk about uh, Stormy Daniels. Look, um, the the you know one of the easiest, I think, laziest takes is uh, there was nothing new there. Uh, we we heard most of it. I mean, there was not a lot new there. Um, but I, I guess give me your your number one takeaway because I you know when I was watching some of the the media criticism, the media reaction. You know, it's interesting how self-referential people have gotten. You have a porn star who is talking about having sex with uh, the president of the United States, uh, at, you know, shortly after he had become a father again, talking about hush money and threats. And people have put this in the frame of, well, we'd heard that before. This is actually nothing new, as opposed to, wow, um, what an extraordinary, amazing moment we're at right here. So Jonathan lasted, you know, it, when, when you came down from, you know, after watching Duke lose, what 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 was your main takeaway from from the whole Stormy Daniels? Uh, we're finished. Like this, this is what the decline and fall of Western civilization yeah, looks yeah. like. I mean, when when people just nod at this and everyone says, uh, "Yeah, okay, well, we already knew that." I mean, this is the completion of the Bill Clinton era, right? I mean, this is the, the primary defense of Bill Clinton before we got to impeachment was always. Uh, you know, okay, sure, yeah, we all know that he has bimbo problems. We all know that he does this. Don't worry about it. And it only got to, you know, sec the second stage of that was, oh, you can't prove anything. You know, and then the third stage of it was, okay, well, maybe you can prove it, but it doesn't really matter because it's immaterial to his actual conduct in office. You know, and then after that, it became, well, we have to protect the, the, the cause of abortion. And this is, I mean, we, we don't even, I don't think we'll ever even get to phase two here. Everyone just says, yeah, okay, sure. Well, of course he does. I don't think there's anybody alive in America who believes that any of this is not true? Do you? Right. I mean, I, I, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there are some people you could find. I'm sure Facebook is a big place. I'm sure you could find five people to say, you know, oh, of course Trump is innocent. Fake news, fake news. But I think even Trump supporters are willing to stipulate that, yeah, of course, it's probably true. Yeah. And, and, but of course, you know, they, I think they everybody believes that they had sex together. The question is, do you believe the story about the threat? 
Um, you know, I mean, how far does this this issue of the hush money go? I, I mean, I thought that 60 Minutes went out of its way to try to link this to campaign finance violations. But um, Mike Warren, your your take watching this, which I assume you did. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I, in fact, I read the transcript uh, beforehand. I just that's I read it for the articles. No, uh, that, was, that was a buzzkill. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> really beautiful. The uh, Warren look- Star gives interview and Mike Warren is reading the transcript. See, this this is what separates the, you know, the, the geeks from the real Americans, right? <laughs> exactly. Real Americans go out and they get they get themselves some beer and some popcorn, you know, maybe some wings, barbecue wings. The porn star is coming on. I get to actually have Stormy Daniels on my television in my den. And you're sitting there reading the transcript. I'm just a jaded millennial, you know. I've seen I've seen it all before. Uh, so I don't know. I uh, look. I think um, I, I, as a sort of analytical matter, the truth is is that much of what she described in her interview um, was in public knowledge. I think the effect, if we're talking about um, the effect of it, however, uh, could be significant, um, which is that she did this on national television. You have. Uh, uh, her in you know uh, in in the flesh so to speak um, sort of <laughs> <God>. <laughs> sort of, sort of uh, 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 giving voice to these allegations to her claims about what she did and you know what there are a lot of people a lot of Americans who still watch 60 Minutes. And I think that makes it more real. So you do have to wonder, a lot of people maybe assume this happened, or maybe they assumed, oh, it's just a bunch of uh, noise and I don't really know what happened. Well, she kind of made people, a lot of uh, Trump voters perhaps, sort of look those allegations right in the eye and judge whether or not they believe them. The other element of this, which you alluded to, Charlie, was she did provide new information about these threats. Now, I don't know um, I, I don't know whether to believe her on that. Uh, but, uh, Donald Trump's lawyer, Michael Cohen, said uh, it didn't happen. She should, she's lying. Um, but, uh, but they're out there now, these allegations that she was threatened in 2011 after she gave the interview to In Touch magazine, which was never published. Um, and she was also claims she was uh, – she felt – uh, threatened indirectly by Michael Cohen earlier this year when she signed a statement saying she never had an affair with Donald Trump when she now says she did. So um, that is new information. And I'm mostly interested in this uh, to see if uh, or to wonder really if, if Robert Mueller in uh, his investigation is going to sort of use this information to delve a little farther, uh, delve a little deeper into uh, the finances of the Trump organization. And the or, Trump or, campaign. or to use it to squeeze Michael Cohen. I mean, this, this right. is one uh, yes, area where yes. you squeeze him here to get something, you know, over here. Do we know what the numbers are on uh, 60 Minutes? Have we seen the, the ratings yet? I have not. Um, seen I read. I read that it was. It was. Um, it was sort of already on track to be the highest uh, rated, uh, you know, TV show for this week. So, hey, say, well, say, Michael, your 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 point is easy for guys like us to overlook because we read the news all the time. We are the consumers. We get very close. So we get very very jaded about it. But you no, know, remember, you know how exponentially larger that audience is. It's also one thing to read a print interview yes. uh, of the about the, somebody says something else for you know her to be on the, you know the number one rated show of the week um, in front of what more than ten million Americans, twenty so million, the, twenty. I'm looking 20, at it right now, twenty million 20 viewers, million. the highest rated episode in a decade. Yeah, so so for I think media insiders who honestly think that your Twitter feed represents what most Americans are saying and and thinking, this is one of those reality checks that yes, she th- th- it may have been reported before, but not in this way. And I thought she came off as as credible. Um, but the question is whether or not people go, all right, look, we we knew the guy was a dog. We we knew he screwed around. He's a billionaire. He likes Playboy models. 
you have a certain part of the Trump base that actually looks at this and go, he had Donald pretty good, you know, right. um, you know, he he he's doing what we fantasized about doing. So the question is, is anybody actually moved by this? Does it actually move the needle in any way or does it simply add to the layers of, of sleaze? Is there this is, of course, the big question about Donald Trump is a man without shame who's held to a completely different standard. Does it actually matter that that he he slept with a porn star and then paid her hush money and maybe sent some thug to threaten her. I think the last two might be a problem. Yes, but I also would say this, Charlie, that I, I and I've been saying this for a while with all these new revelations or uh, events or moments where Trump does or says something that you just think that's so far out of bounds uh, of of what should be uh, acceptable, uh, you know, politically is that. These things have a cumulative effect, uh, and the, even among people who are soft supporters of the president, um, and they sort of weigh down on you. And maybe you don't abandon him when uh, you know the the economy is booming and things are going well. And and hey, even Republicans are still in charge of Congress, so there's a sense that that the Trump agenda is moving forward in some way. Um, but I think. There, if there is, and I think there will be at some point a moment, whether it's a complete uh, collapse of the stock market or Democrats take over Congress in 2018, a moment that, uh, that sort of uh, calls these soft Trump supporters to a come to Jesus moment where they say, um, is this really all worth it? Um, and I think moments like the Stormy Daniels interview, finding that out, learning these sort of disgusting details about it, just compound the, 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 the problem and make that support for him even softer. Let me, let me just obsess for just a moment about this. And I want to throw this to, to Jonathan. I, I, and I think I know the answer to this. But I mean, one of the questions that is in the back of my mind, here's a guy question. OK, uh, you know, Karen McDougal is, you know, a playboy playmate. You know, here's I have Stormy no Daniels idea who that is. Most you know, why do these women <laughs> sleep with somebody like Donald Trump? She basically said, Ugh, no, I wasn't attracted to him. It was, it's gross. I, OK, I understand. I mean, you've seen that poster pick out the, you know, pick the rich guy out on the beach, you know, the big fat guy yeah. with, the, with the girl in the bikini. I mean, but but is is really the money that much of an aphrodisiac? I mean, is there any possible I, inducement for the, these women is, to do that This is that a dangerous thing? territory for me to speculate on. But I will say this. The, the most interesting thing, the single most interesting line of the entire In Touch, or In Touch, In Style. In, in Style, well, who, I don't know. Whatever, the, the, the long, the long mm-hmm. interview that she gave that got suppressed for years uh, was when <laughs> she said, you know, he, was in, he invited her back to his bungalow. He went, she went with him. And then she was like, oh, you know, he was taking off his clothes. And she's like, oh, God, he's going to want me to sleep with him. And then she's like, yeah, okay. You know, like, I'm here. Like, you know, you're you're in Rome. Like, I, I wasn't really interested in going over to see the, the Trevi Fountain, but I guess I'm here. We'll go see it. And, uh, <laughs> and then afterwards when she says, you know, he got up to go to the other room and she thought to herself, oh, God, please don't try to pay me. As if this is a thing that has happened to her before. <laughs> this is, yeah. I mean, it's the familiarity with the situation. I would say in all of it, it's, it is a different world um, and a world which nice Wisconsinite radio hosts and nice journalists in Washington really can barely comprehend. I would say having spent one night at the Playboy Mansion myself, uh, it, 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 it's like wait, all the movies would suggest what, that you would think what, it was. Wait, you were at the Playboy Mansion? Yeah. That's how, right. how did you... <laughs> Do you have enough time on this what? podcast to? Uh... It's a special three-hour episode. <laughs> yeah, my 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 kind of like looking like what? Huh? 
I've heard. I've heard. I've heard rumors. It lived up to your fantasies. It it exceeded them. Frankly, it was it was the craziest thing I've ever seen. Yeah, it was amazing. Exceeded your fantasies. Yeah, no, I mean, this is, I want to tell you. something about your fantasies or how amazing <laughs> your experience it was, was. It was, I mean, there were like literally topless girls jumping on trampolines just randomly. It was, it was, the, it, I can't even begin to tell you how amazing it was. I, I, I was in the grotto at one point looking for my colleague, Matt Labash. This is how magical it was. So, uh, <laughs> so, so uh, we have long held a private joke around the office that Matt Labash is a doppelganger for Corey Feldman. The, the 80s teen heartthrob. And, uh, and so I'm at this party at the Playboy Mansion and Matt Labash is there and I see Corey Feldman. And so I, I, I think to myself, oh my God, I got to get Labash and Corey Feldman in the same place at the same time to see if it breaks the space-time continuum. And so I go racing around and I go into like the padded room where like everything is like padded and then there are mirrors everywhere else and, and he's not there. And I go into the grotto where there are like the lotions everywhere and he's not there. And after like making a 17-minute circuit of the, the Playboy Mansion grounds looking for Matt Labash, I come back and I find, and he and Corey Feldman are huddled close together having a, a conference of some sort whispering confidence confidences to one another it like i said it was a, a magical magical <laughs> night yeah and and those are just the pg-13 by the things. way if you ever come to wisconsin don't tell that story if you're if you're at a bar <laughs> saying hey tell me about your amazing night at the playboy mansion where there are topless women on trampolines and you describe how you're looking for matt labor <laughs> <laughs> okay, it was I, a different time <laughs> now how do i segue because i actually wanted to I wanted to move on to what I think is is one of the more bizarre stories of the weekend, but I we can't top this. Okay, so Michael Warren, bring us back, center us here. Yeah. The the resignation of John Dowd as the attorney, and then the whole blow up of Joe DeGeneva. You wake up on this Monday morning, and you realize the president of the United States, who is faced with this Mueller investigation, doesn't have a criminal lawyer really on on his staff at this point. And it's you want to talk about, you know, something if you're a Trump supporter or a Trump rationalizer, um, this has got to be concerning at some point. He's not just do not just have it's one thing to have chaos in the White House and chaos in foreign policy, which can, of course, lead to a nuclear war. But you have you have chaos in this this legal team largely because and to correct me if I'm wrong, because Donald Trump is always going to be Donald Trump's lead lawyer. Right. That's right. That was a uh, anonymous quote in The Washington Post yeah. today. Um, uh, by somebody who's apparently close to the legal team, uh, whatever the legal team is now, I believe it's Jay Sekulow, who's essentially a TV lawyer on Fox News, who's joined uh, this team and and Ty Cobb. So we should distinguish, of course, John Dowd was the outside attorney for the Trump legal team. He's not an, a White House employee uh, as Sekulow and, uh, and, and Ty Cobb and Joe DeGeneva was supposed to be. Um, and there's a difference there because there are certain things that, um, that the, the lawyers employed at the White House are unable to talk about with Trump, that John Dowd was, uh, essentially strategy, um, what to do. Um, and that was a part of the big rift that Donald Trump wanted to, um, uh, wanted to sit down, for instance, with, uh, with Robert Mueller's team. John Dowd is telling uh, 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 John Dowd is saying, no, don't do that, Mr. President. You can't <laughs> do that. Uh, yeah. That that was the that was the source of the of the disagreement. And now Dowd is out and Dowd is apparently also was not thrilled with the idea of working with Joe DeGeneva. Um, but you're right. Th this is Who a problem. Oh, exactly. Um, this is a problem that 
Um, I don't think the president quite understands he's been misled, uh, if you believe news reports, misled by his legal team. Ty Cobb has been telling him uh, the Mueller investigation is going to wrap up, uh, you know, any time now. He's been telling him that for like nine months. Um, and and in the end, uh, what you have is you have a professional prosecutor who knows what he's doing, who has sort of the best team mm-hmm. behind him in Robert Mueller going up against uh, Donald Trump. Uh, a, a couple of lawyers who can't really strategize with him uh, and a empty space on the outside where it, it should be noted, none of the sort of top lawyers are working for him, either because they don't want to because he's a bad client. They have conflicts because this is a uh, an issue that is sort of encompassing in uh, Washington and everybody's lawyered up and there's all sorts of conflicts. Uh, and it's just it's a problem that that I, I I don't think we are seeing or we will see until this Mueller investigation is wrapped up uh, the full effects of which is that he's going into this kind of uh, kind of blind. Gentlemen, thank you for joining me, uh, Jonathan Last and Michael Warren, and thank you for listening to the Daily Standard podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes, and we'll be back tomorrow to do this all over again. <laughs>